Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ2 the Deuce. Did you unwrap your beer? It sounded like you were doing the Foley art where they tear a bell pepper apart to make it sound like you're stabbing someone. Is that what you're doing? That was, yes, that's yes. I'm drinking a bell pepper. (laughs) It wouldn't shock me. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. I am having a uh, Mama's Little Yellow Pills from Oscar Blues Brewery. Ooh, that sounds complicated and i have been to that brewery and it is delightful really yeah, it's, in, it's in denver it's colorado. oh is it it's actually in lions colorado okay yes well this is a very refreshing uh bohemian pilsner it's a good one Oi. and bohemian pilsner okay bohemian pilsner. <laughs> <laughs> galileo galileo <laughs> <laughs> i have forced our other co-host which i'll introduce in just a second to listen to nothing except for the soundtrack to Tick, Tick, Boom for maybe the last six weeks. Let, let me be clear on this. I enjoyed Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, having the soundtrack on loop is another matter. <laughs> I thought Andrew Garfield was great. Uh, Lynn did a good job directing. Look, I will stop uh, I will yeah. stop playing Tick, Tick, Boom when you know all the words. I might already. Uh, we will try that out. <laughs> okay. Name all the roommates. Run. Name all the roommates oh, in four years. Yeah, well, then you haven't listened to it enough. Oh, boy. All right. And then by my side, my surly co-host, Mr. Will the Thrill. Greetings and salutations. And what are you having? Yes, yes sir. That sounded, that, like you, like you, that sounded like you caught the shotgun. Like that you were delightful. Uh, what, what are you drinking? This is the Hop Cloud, ladies and gentlemen, coming to you from San Diego, California. San Diego. San Diego. I believe it means a whale's vagina. I don't think that's what it means. Mm. Historians have lost the true meaning. Mike Mike Hess Brewery from San Diego, which I'm drinking out of a California glass. Oh, fun. Yeah. With a I bought that it. at the airport because I was really tired. Yeah, we were really tired. And at the airport, Lily <laughs> goes, I want that. And well, we ended up getting it. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, first off, uh, here's our shameless plug. You guys go drink Tiesta tea. Yeah. It's tasty. It's taste tea. Tasty tea. Tiesta tea. Why am I being surly about this? Well, because we thought up until like January the 30th that we were doing pretty good. Okay. You do know it's January 15th. Hold on. We thought we were doing really good. Okay. Then we record our episode last week, and other than like me having an absolute mush mouth, which I apologize for, I couldn't get math straight because I was like, uh, you know, Michael was outnumbered six to one, which would make seven. And that's not how many people are in the Jackson five. Yes, the Jackson seven. <laughs> so, very famous outfit. Sorry about that. But uh, we had like 
11 people pass away in the time between our last episode and this episode. Now, the first one, I mean, I apologize because we're not going to be able to give all of these guys, you know, the, the moments that they deserve. And we do apologize for that. But there are a couple of these that kind of shook us to the core this week. Me personally, uh, I have worked with two of these people. The first one is Sir Sidney Poitier. Oh, geez. Now, he's on this list because the last film he ever did was called The Last Brickmaker in America. And I was actually a stand-in on that film. So I actually got to work on the last film that Sidney Poitier ever worked on. He was a kind and gentle man with a career that spanned decades upon decades. He passed away at 95. And he was such a, a, just a gentle, wonderful human being. And I, and like, normally I do not (laughs) on purpose name drop, but working with him was one of the greatest honors of my life. And the next one I think was that, that hit a lot of us was Bob Saget. Not me too. Danny Tanner man it's america's funniest home videos yeah it, it, like we you all know, grew up on full really house. easy to forget that for yeah for for a little while there bob was the biggest star on television who had two what top 10 programs at the same time which yeah. i don't know if anybody else has ever done and, and that was the i mean he was america's tv dad at that point because he was danny and then in that role as the you know video host he was kind of fatherly yeah so, yeah, he yeah. Was, and in retrospect he's not bill cosby Mm. yeah and and every single time that we have watched a video about about bob it has been nothing but warm kind and people are absolutely gutted that he's gone well there was such a weird uh duality of he was the dad on full house and then he could be an absolutely filthy and hilarious comedian but then as an as an actual person Almost to a almost to a person, everybody says he was just a a wonderful guy. Yeah, um, and had just done a really nice um, and very funny remembrance of Betty White. Uh, I think mm-hmm. six days before he died. And if you haven't seen it, it's hysterically funny, and you should go read it. Um, and then, of course, he was very tight with Norm Macdonald, who we very unfortunately lost a couple of months ago. So yeah, that's really it's just that's just a really really tough one. Yeah, and I think it was embodied in, was it Jimmy Kimmel's Jimmy tribute? Kimmel, like, please, yeah, please go watch on YouTube Jimmy Kimmel's tribute to Bob Saget. It was one of the most gut-riching things I've ever seen. Rest easy, Bob. You made a lot of us laugh, and from a very young age. And I think he might be the reason why I'm obsessive-compulsive, because I always identified with Danny Tanner, and now I'm always cleaning up. And I will... I will rate Dustbusters without irony. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Then we had Calvin Simon. Calvin Simon was a member of Parliament Funkadelic. He actually was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with 15 other members. I forget how many people are in the Parliament Funkadelic. They're all of them. All of them. Yes. (laughs) All of the people. I am actually in Parliament Funkadelic, uh, but 15 members of Parliament Funkadelic. And... And then we had, uh, you know, I don't have any information. All I know it was, I believe it was, you know, and trigger warning. I believe Sinead O'Connor's 17-year-old son passed away after about a depression, went missing, and then committed suicide. Oh, I geez. believe 
I believe I have not been able to find a lot of material on it. Yeah, is what's it... what's uh, said? And his name was Shane. Shane. Shane O'Connor. And uh, it was the story was released, and then they kind of peeled back on the reporting. You know, our hearts go out to Sinead because that it, the old adage is you should never have to bury your child, but that is that's so incredibly sad. The other one was Michael Lang, and Michael Lang was a concert promoter, but he wasn't just any concert mm -hmm. promoter. Michael Lang, who was born the same year your dad was, oh, uh, 1944, oh, yeah. in Brooklyn. Close, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you, you might not know his name, but you know his work. If you know anything about 1969, he was one of the co-creators of the Woodstock Music and Art Festival in 69. He organized it and he was a he was the organizer that helped follow up Woodstock 94 and then the I think disastrous 99. And, and I think TJ you pointed out a connection there to someone we've had on our show if I'm not mistaken. Correct. The the picture that was used with his obituary in the New York Times was one taken of him by Elliot Landy who we had as a guest a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Um and then we had James Matume, yeah. who was a composer, songwriter, producer, musical influencer, and political activist, also passed away. Producer Dwayne Hickman, who played Dobie Gillis, passed away. Oh, jeez. We had uh, someone because I'm in true I'm into true crime and disasters and you know all that jazz. Uh, but if you guys have followed any of the Robert Durst trial and any subsequent things he had, special on HBO and all that all that stuff, he actually passed away uh, while in prison. So, um, you know, that. And then we had bungee singer and bassist Burke Shelley mm -hmm. pass away. Uh, we had uh, Peter Bogdanovich, somebody else that I worked with. And I believe you actually met Travis. Is that right? Because I know I met him when he was shooting the movie, but I can't remember if you actually got to meet him. I don't think so. Um, he, he did do these excellent and I do mean excellent uh, and very lengthy um, documentary on Tom Petty that we referenced back during our Tom Petty heavy header series. So I don't know if you remember this or not, because I was about 15 at the time. Peter Bogdanovich and Lori Laughlin and Grant Show did a movie in our hometown. <laughs> and it was like the biggest, uh, and it was a period piece about the, about World War II or I think, yeah, World War II, I think it was the 40s or 50s can't remember but it was called the price of heaven and it was a made for tv movie and uh you can see my shining face uh, as grant show gets off the bus so da -da. but that was uh directed by peter bogdanovich and um yeah i i only got to meet him briefly but uh seemed seemed a decent fellow and he directed rated x for and, those of you playing along at home and he also directed mask yep and then the most recent edition would be Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes. Uh, that was a very influential band in the 1960s. She was the band leader. Wait, so yeah. I, I, I I missed that Ronnie Spector had passed yeah, away. Yeah, that, that was today, right? She passed away today. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, she Just was- Just like Ronnie said, be yeah. my little baby. Yeah, oh. she- What a great song that was. She was That's an icon. Nice. She was a 1960s icon. And like my brother said, uh, her big hit was Be My Baby, which is just- she of course was married to phil um and wrote a book about how scary that was can imagine and then but then but then she mounted kind of a big comeback in the 80s by doing a duet with eddie money where she sort of reprised her biggest was, hit 
Yes, in Take Me Home Tonight, right? Yeah, in the video, you just keep waiting. You see her, you know, you see her silhouette in the distance, and then she keeps coming and she keeps coming, and Eddie's like on stage doing whatever Eddie does. But we gotta <laughs> like, have him. Like he's playing the saxophone and the guitar, and I don't know. I think he puts up some lights and maybe sells beer, like arrests somebody. There's lots going on there. And right. she keeps coming and she keeps coming. And then, like, at the very end of the video, hey, look, it's Ronnie. And she's there. And then she turns around and leaves. Not, I think well, he even says, just like Ronnie says, right? That's the, the lyric. Yes, that's the line. Yeah. Just like Ronnie says. Uh, I think we got to cover Eddie Money. He's, he's the one we got to cover. Uh, my, Eddie Money. My boss used to play golf with him. Old boss. True Weird. story. Yeah. Weird. So she oh, man, she had a beautiful voice. She had a beautiful voice. Gorgeous. Yeah. yeah that, that high note, the, oh, 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 like, that step down. So awesome. Like, it's iconic. Um, well, she passed away today, which is Wednesday. We're recording this on Wednesday, which, by the way, if you guys haven't figured out with our schedule, the release dates are going to be anywhere between Wednesday and Friday. <laughs> we will get you an episode. They're going to be somewhere between Wednesday and when we get to it, Chachi. <laughs> well, her, her family wrote that our beloved Earth Angel Ronnie peacefully left this world today after a brief battle with cancer. Uh, she, has, she was with family and in the arms of her husband, Jonathan. Ronnie lived her life with a twinkle in her eye and a spunky little attitude and a wicked sense of humor with a smile on her face. Mm -hmm. And every picture I've ever seen of her, that is absolutely true. Yeah, so, that's right. Which is quite know. a thing. Which, which is quite a thing to be able to do, having been married to Phil and gone through what she says she had to go through. To yeah, be honest yeah. I, yeah. So that that's our show, guys. Thank you so much for <laughs> coming by. Our Still not our website. Yeah. And, and drink some tea. That, yes. Don't leave without the tea. Hey oh, let, let that, it, that, let, a, that joke was really hot. Like let, let, it, let it seep in. Can you hand me the water bottle? Oh, I don't have cheese. Ah, sprayed. Good Lord. Don't get in my beer. <laughs> don't put water in my beer. That's just rude. <laughs> I just started squirting him with a like water bottle the like the cats. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, and goodness me. Nope, give that to me. <laughs> All right, so... What are we talking about today? A lengthy list of deceased persons and uh, Michael Jackson. That and was Tito. that was Tito. that was such a long. That is the longest list of people that have passed away. It's only been a yeah. week. And I it mean, was a week. That's insane. Yeah, uh, a week. Twenty twenty two is trying to best twenty sixteen is the year of the massacre. Speaking of which, I had a fabulous dream the other night. Just to, let's break this tension a little bit. I had a great dream the other night that I went ghost hunting with David Bowie, which is ironic, but so comforting at the same time <laughs> well anyway let's uh let's chat about mr michael jackson okay so when we last left michael he was just finishing up shooting the whiz and it was not received very well uh it no, was it, a, it was a critical and box office failure but he considered Good. it was it was one of the best experiences of his life and i think if i'm editorializing a little bit i think that was because for the first time in his life he was on his own and he was doing his own thing. He wasn't, it wasn't involving any of his siblings. It wasn't his father telling him what to do. It wasn't, he was, he was in control of his own career at that point. And I think that that's why he got so excited about that project. What we didn't talk about last week was there was a medical scare that happened to Michael when he was in production. On the 4th of July, he was at the beach uh, at his brother Jermaine's house, which is about a half a block away from the waterfront. And he was messing around in the surf, and all of a sudden, he couldn't breathe, like nothing. There was no air. He tried not to panic, but he ran back to the house to find Jermaine, who took him to the hospital. 
a blood vessel had burst in his lung. Oh, jeez. He wrote in Moonwalk that it never happened again, but he says that later on in life, he would feel pinches in his lungs and jerks in his lungs, which he thinks were probably just his imagination. After he learned that his condition was related to clarity, it was suggested by his doctor that he tried to take things a little bit slower, but of course his schedule would not allow it. And that's because after The Wiz was filmed, but before the movie was released, it was back to business as usual for the family. The group went into the studio to record Destiny, which is widely considered to be one of the group's biggest and best pinnacle albums of all time it was the first album that was said to be written and produced by the group itself all the all the jacksons did indeed write all but one of the songs it was actually bobby and mike atkinson that did most of the production work destiny was by far considered to me the most exciting jackson album to date and this is including all the ones that were recorded for motown from the time that the group put together a cohesive, structured album. Sorry, for the first time, the group put together a cohesive, structured album. There are no filler songs. All eight of them are noteworthy. Hmm. Michael had arguably never sounded better than he did on this album. His performance on the ballad, Push Me Away, with its orchestral sweep and melody, it was carefree and effortless, but on a closer look, you'll understand how measured and precise his vocals actually are. It got off on a bad start when it was released with the high flash pop of Blaming on the Boogie, a single that didn't even make the top 20 in the U.S. sales, but it made top 10 in Britain, which is weird because the Jacksons never really did good across the pond. And it's one of my favorite songs. <laughs> I mean, so, so what we're going to do right now is we're going to listen to one of our favorite songs, which is a Blame It on the Boogie. Shine! 
think about that guys i mean that's like the michael we know i think we're getting to that point where it's like that's the michael jackson we i think our generation knows best that's the first time i mean we've you know we've obviously played a lot of songs in the 387 parts that we've done thus far but that's the first one where you're like that's the fully formed voice of michael that you know right there and and that's probably one of the better to me one of the 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 quality of the music has taken a step forward in that one to me from from so from so, a lot of what we've heard so far i agree so the album destiny which this appeared on would fare far better than their last outing which was going places which ironically didn't uh the best reviewed song was shake your booty down to the ground which by the way uh you can't say that without sort of smiling true shake your booty down to the ground i will say that as booty booty to the ground booty beauty which was written by michael and randy and that was released in february 1974 and that had the chorus let's dance let's shout shake your body down shake your body down to the ground let's dance shout yeah yeah so it was actually inspired by an ad lib from marvin gay's gotta give it up let's dance let's shout shout Get funky, that's what it's all about. And the rhythmic patterns from Teddy Pentagrass's Get Up, Get Down, Get Funky, Get Loose. So released to radio in a single edit of three minutes and 45 seconds because there was a version of it that was almost eight minutes long that was used for the clubs. Okay. And that had to be edited down. So they edited it down to a a radio-friendly length. And that single reached number three in Cashbox Magazine and peaked at number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. It also peaked at number three on the Billboard Soul single charts and the ensuing 12-inch disco single remix focused more on drums and rhythm tracks, as well as the new synthesizer voice three-octave climbing that was not heard on the album version. So Shake Your Body sold over 2 million copies, attaining platinum status from the Recording Industry Association of America, and that's the RIAA, which for some reason I can say Recording Industry Association of America completely fine. If you ask me to say the letters, I will fail. What's interesting is Michael's now getting credits as a songwriter. Yes. So that's starting to come into play too. And I think that was a big thing was because they were given that freedom at Epic Mm -hmm. to do that. They weren't given that at Motown, and Motown thought that they were lagging. And so give them a little bit of freedom, and they're, they're actually charting again. That just shows you, like, how talented they actually were. Uh, behind the scenes, there had been a switch. At the end of 1978, Joseph had severed tied with Richard Aarons, which was their manager. Joseph recruited Ron Weisner and Freddie DeMann. Weisner was the business manager, and DeMann was a promoter. Uh, Joseph felt that he needed the assistance of these men, who were both white, to ensure that CBS would promote the Jacksons as the company did with their white artists. So see, even now they're fighting against that stigma and that racism that is so prevalent in life. It's not even the music industry, it's life. And because the sales were so low in the UK, because of the fact that it was released six months 
after the U.S. release, they decided that they wouldn't tour or concern themselves with any numbers in Europe. But Michael was still unhappy. CBS had whipped up a frenzy about how terrific the brothers were because they were producing their album, but that wasn't true. They hadn't actually produced the album on their own, and Michael hated living that lie. He was too old for this nonsense. That's the thing. Remember, even when uh, Diana Ross said, oh, I, I discovered them, he was upset by that. Mm. Because it was a lie. And so, of course, like, he's he's too old for this. He's 19. He also lost his voice while on tour. So Marlon had to sing his high register parts and Michael just lip synced. And that humiliated him. Eventually, two weeks of performances had to be canceled because of Michael's throat problems. Well, like, the thing is, you've been pushing this kid for how many years? Give him a damn break. Nope. Sorry. Yeah. And on top of everything... Joseph is still in the picture and he's still a problem. He didn't want to be around him anymore. Fault like was understandably pancaked by his personal views about him and his judgment of his father as a child abuser and a philanderer. There's no way Michael was able to credit Joseph with anything ever. And his brothers soon realized that something was different. He was acting strangely. <laughs> Tito remembered is it if it was if something had snapped in him. He was not showing up at family meetings when we discussed our future plans, and he had nothing to offer. Maybe he was planning to go out on his own. I don't know. He didn't say much. You never really knew what he was thinking. Michael told his father that he wanted to record a solo album, and Joseph's reaction was predictable, supportive, but with qualifications. Hmm. Because, of course, everything has to benefit Joseph in the end. Why not? You know how I feel about it, Michael. Do what you want, as long as it doesn't interfere with the group's business. He finished with a warning saying that family was the most important thing. Mm. And maybe Joseph wasn't really concerned about Michael doing a solo album, because in truth, the past albums that he made never really amounted to much. His first two for Motown, which were Gotta Be There and Ben, which were 1971 and 1972. Oh, and if you'll remember, 1971 was the last year that they had had a real hit with the song Mama's Pearl. Each of those had over about 350,000 copies, which wasn't bad. But on his third album, The Music in Me, sold less than uh, 81,000 copies, which was a very pitiful showing. And then the last album that he had done michael forever was released in 1975 and did a little bit better hitting almost 100,000 copies but not quite getting there all of the albums featuring all the jacksons always sold better than the solo albums if i need to i can also remind you about how jermaine was doing at motown just <laughs> if you really want to know how bad that was just go back to part six where i talk about that but past spoiler alert to episode that is already out it wasn't good in the end, Joseph always felt like it was in everybody's interest to keep the act together. So Michael prepared for his new solo album. Now, Michael had actually first met Mr. Quincy Jones in Los Angeles when he was about 12 years old. And Quincy later told him at the time that Sammy Davis Jr. had said to him, that kid is going to be the next biggest thing since sliced bread. Sammy Davis called it? Sammy Davis called Michael Jackson's career to Quincy Jones. Wow. He was young at the time, but Michael vaguely remembers Sammy Davis Jr. introducing him to the man he would call Q. Now, the friendship began to blossom on the set of The Wiz, and it developed into a more father-son relationship after work. Once it had wrapped, he called him and said, look, I'm going to be doing an album. Do you think that you could recommend some producers? Now, the thing is, Michael wasn't hinting to Quincy that he wanted him to be 
the producer, he was very naive, but he was a very honest, naive person. And they talked about music for a while and they were trying to come up with some names. And then after like some half-hearted hemming and hawing, Quincy said, why don't you just let me do it? <laughs> Michael said, I hadn't really thought about it. It sounded to me as if I was hinting, but I wasn't. I just didn't think he would be interested in my music. So I stammered something like, oh, sure, great idea. Never thought about that, Michael said. And he goes on to say, Quincy still kids him about that to this day. And of course, that's that's from the book Moonwalk. So uh, still going on with the quote. I immediately began the plan that would become off the wall. Now, in the meantime, his brothers and him decided to form their own production company because they don't have enough to do. And they were trying to figure out names to call it. And he had always thought about peacocks and how they were so beautiful. And he actually admired one that Barry Gordy had at his home. And he read an article that had a great picture of a peacock. And it had, it was a very dry, but interesting article about peacocks that he found in this magazine. And the writer said that the peacock's full plumage would only explode when it was in love. And all the colors would shine and it would be the just a beautiful blast of rainbow colors all on one body. Hmm. Michael said, I was immediately taken with that beautiful image and the meaning behind it. That bird's plumage conveyed the message that I was looking for to explain the Jackson's intentions and our intense devotion to one another, as well as our multifaceted interests. And his brothers went along with the idea and they set up the new company called Peacock Productions to sidestep the trap of having to rely too heavily on the Jackson name. They wanted to form their own production company because they wanted to establish themselves as a new presence in the music world, not just, just singers and dancers, but writers, composers, arrangers, producers, and even publishers. So can we just take a step back and talk about that for a second? These kids are creating something to be able to sidestep established places so that they could make a name for themselves and basically be an in-house production company. He's not even 20 yet. It's insane. And especially yeah. considering where he's come from, where it's been very much, you know, plug and play, do what we tell you to do, you know? And yeah. He's going completely in another direction. Well, yeah, he, he, they, I'm pretty sure the consensus with all of the Jackson brothers was they wanted to be able to skirt their dad at some yeah. point. Sounds that way. Hey, LD, got to step in here. We have to take a quick break for our sponsors. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. And we're back. Awesome. Let's jump back into Michael. Michael didn't want off the wall to sound like outtakes from Destiny. And that's why he got an outside producer. He wanted to get Quincy, who wouldn't come in to that project with any kind of preconceived notions about how it should sound. And so he needed some good help to choose material. And because he didn't have enough time to write a ton of songs that he would be proud of that he could present to put on tape. So in Michael's words, I knew the public expected more than two good singles on the album especially in the discos with their extended cuts. I wanted the fans to feel satisfied. So are you ready for a fun fact? 
All right. Off the wall was originally going to be called Girlfriend. Mm. Hold. Paul and Linda McCartney wrote a song of that title with Michael Jackson in mind before they ever met him. This story is a really interesting one. So <laughs> Paul McCartney was on a part was at a party on the Queen Mary, which is docked at Long Beach, mm-hmm. which by the way, you can actually still go to the docks and hang out on that boat to this day, which I will always plug the Queen Mary. Cause There's I'm like, hotel. yes. Cause it feels like you step back in time. It's awesome. It I plugged the Queen Mary before. <laughs> you can't go with TJ. He's a prefer. <laughs> Damn it. Right in her old mess hall. I like my newfound squirty power. Uh. <laughs> so the story of Paul McCartney is a very interesting one. So his daughter, Heather, had gotten his number from someone, because apparently you could just get Michael Jackson's number from someone if you're Paul McCartney's daughter, Fair. and gave him an invitation to this big party. She really liked the Jackson 5's music, and they got to talking. Much later, after his Wings Over America tour was completed, Paul and his family were in Los Angeles, invited him to the party at Harold Lloyd's estate. On the wings of love. No, not okay, that one. Not that one. Oh, okay, sorry. They met and shook hands and Paul said, mm-hmm. you know, I've written a song for you. Michael was very surprised and thank him. And then he started singing Girlfriend to Michael Jackson at that party. They exchanged phone numbers and partners to get together soon. But of course, projects in life just got in the way and they didn't talk for a couple of years. And Paul McCartney ended up putting that song, Girlfriend, on his own album, London Town. Now, something very funny happened when they were making Off the Wall. Quincy told Michael, hey, Michael, I've got a song that is perfect for you. He played the song Girlfriend for (laughs) him, which had been submitted for Michael, not realizing that, of course, Paul had written it specifically for Michael. When Michael told Quincy, he was astonished. They ended up recording it soon after and put that on the album because it was just an incredible coincidence that gave all parties goosebumps. How weird is that? Also, that is the longest fun fact that we've ever had. It might That's got to be right up there. Yeah, for longest fun facts. Yes. Still glad they went with Off the Wall because Girlfriend's kind of a lousy album title. Yeah, it's, it's not great, but I mean, songs are good. Uh, after having listened to hundreds of songs, Michael and Quincy decided on a batch to record. Among them were three Michael Jackson compositions, which were Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, Working Day and Night, and Get on the Floor, which was co-written with Lewis Johnson, who was the basis for the Brothers Johnson. Quincy sought balance to make sure that songs like She's Out of My Life and It's the Falling in Love, which was written by David Foster, who is married to Catherine McPhee. And there he, is. Yes, of course, they added the song Girlfriend, Rock With You, and Burn This Disco Out, and then Off the Wall, which would be, of course, the title of the album. Now, interesting story about the song She's Out of My Life. Michael actually did cry at the end of the take. Let me rephrase that. Michael actually did cry at the end of every single take. He said that the words just suddenly had a strong effect on him, that they had so much buildup inside of him that a dam just broke. So if you actually listen to that, they tried to figure out how to cut around it, but there really wasn't a logical way to do it in the editing process so they just left it which i think it gives the song so much more impact that's interesting so during the recording of don't stop till you get enough michael unveiled a falsetto that no one had ever heard from him before 
all of the right elements were in place on this song. Those elements were unstoppable beat, a meticulously well-balanced deliverance of lyrics, and a melody with a driving energy. Michael explained that he could not shake the song's melody when he came up for it. So he was walking through the house, humming and singing it to himself. Finally, he went to the family's 24-track studio and had Randy put down the melody on piano because Michael actually couldn't play it. So then he played the tape for Quincy and it was a done deal. It had to be on the album. So let's listen to that right now. We're going to listen to a super upbeat song because we are not going to listen to She's Out of My Life because we don't need that kind of energy today. So let's listen to Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. You know, I was, I was wondering, you know, if she could keep on because the force has got a lot of power and it makes me feel like it, it makes me feel like
Ah, the 70s, where they didn't know how to end the song. Well, actually, when to end the song, more like it. <laughs> you had always thought it was keep on with the people, people, people at the post office. People at the post office, don't stop till you get it's enough. actually keep on with the force, don't stop. With no. those last two overlapping each other. Mm. Uh, but what do you think about the song? I mean, it's iconic. Like, it really is, yeah. Again, that's the Michael. It's a great, oh, it's a great song. That's, you know, um, since we started this series back in the year of our Lord, 18 and 37, <laughs> I've, that's probably the first truly undeniably great song that we've had. Oh, I, don't, I don't say how anybody, who, regardless of what genre of music you prefer to listen to, could listen to that and not acknowledge, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Accurate. I would say Blame It on the Boogie was the first one that's really... And Blame It on the Boogie is something that you find later on in life. Like, okay. Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is something that you hear as a child. And then you have the Jackson 5, like, you know, ABC, you know, I Want You Back. Those are classics. Yeah, those are classics. Yeah. But this is this is Michael Jackson. Fair, yeah. This is him writing and producing and recording, and he's taking the lead. It's not him having material written for him and performed by the Jackson 5. But it's also, to me, this is the first, probably, and maybe Ben, possibly, this is the first really great song that we've had in the series because early, and I mean, really up until this episode, it's been a lot of very boy bandish, bubblegummy, sweet pop stuff. That's, I mean, they're good and some of them are classics, but I don't consider them great songs, I, but I do consider that one one. Yeah, we'll have to agree to disagree because I do think that Want You Back is beautiful and Ben is incredible. There's some stuff in the Jackson 5 that Michael did take the lead on that was just iconic. Now, I will say for me, this is one of the first songs that we hear with his voice that we will come to know. This is vocally where he rests. And this is the start of the Michael Jackson that will be prevalent for the rest of this series. There is a reason why he is a megastar. And this song is one of the first where he got to stretch every one of his musical muscles, not just his voice, but his writing skills. So uh, when it comes to Don't Stop, it was released ahead of the album, which is on the 28th of July, 1979. We're almost born. Hooray. We are almost born, Will Thrill. We're getting there. In less than three months, it was at the top of the charts. Michael's first solo number one record in seven years. And it actually went to number three in the UK, which was huge for him. It was also the subject of his first solo music video. Now, when you see the music video for Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, you'll see how, more, how much more progressive he becomes later on with his storytelling and innovation. Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is basically him on a dance floor, and that is pretty much it. There's no story there, and we will talk about his music, late, like his music videos later on, especially in episode nine, nine, 19, nine, 922. <laughs> uh, now, I would like to sort of sidestep from where we are and talk about his mental and emotional state while recording this album. Making Off the Wall was one of the most difficult periods in his life. Even though it was successful, he said, I had very few close friends at that time and I was feeling isolated. I was so lonely that I used to walk through my neighborhood hoping that I would run into someone so I could talk to them and perhaps become friends with them. 
Mm. I wanted to meet people who didn't know who I was. I wanted to run into somebody who would be my friend because they liked me and needed a friend too, not because of who I am. I wanted to meet anybody in the neighborhood, the neighborhood kids, anybody. And we'll talk about his close relationships a little bit later. Now, when Rock You made it to number one and then Off the Wall was released and She's Out of My Life went to number 10, Michael became the first solo artist to have four top 10 singles from one album in America that beat out Elvis Presley. Jeez. And since the Beatles were a group, he doesn't really rival. I would also, I would add the one caveat that, um, you know, the 50s especially when elvis you know first broke people didn't put out a lot of albums so i mean there is that one little caveat but it was it was mostly singles you know and it's a a thing he would do uh again and then again after that and then i think again after that yeah so he will keep doing it for quite some time so in britain it also made recording history with five hits released from a single album. Although it sells 6 million copies worldwide, it never went beyond number three in the US and number five in the UK. Michael was excited, but cautious. For him, it was a start. Now, of course, because you know, you can't have a Michael Jackson episode without talking about Joseph a little bit. Joseph was concerned. He literally said, this thing with Michael, it's good. He said to the family attorney, I'm proud of the kid, but worried. When asked what he was worried about, Joseph spit back too much independence. It's not good. Which completely goes against what you said, how he's finally creating and getting out of that. Yeah, and of course, aye, like aye. You, it's just like he has to have a grip on people. Too much yeah. independence for this grown man. Right. Who I've had under my thumb my entire life. Right. Like, mom still calls me every day, but she's not like, she hasn't bugged my car yet right yeah you know she still gets worried that i go to the grocery store alone even though i'm a 42 year old woman um but you know, it's that that statement is worrisome it's a bother it bothered me when i was writing it, it literally like it had an impact on me i walked away for a couple of minutes because it pissed me off so much that he looks at his son and instead of going my son is successful he's coming into his own he's got so much talent he was like yeah it's okay but you know independence isn't good he should be with me when off the wall only won one grammy in the r&b category michael was crushed wow. he said i cried a lot my family thought i was going crazy because i was weeping so much about it but with much resolve he finally said you watch the next album I do, you just, I'll show them. But of course, Joseph only had his personal interest in mind saying that he didn't need any more success, that he needed to get into the studio with his brothers. That's what he needed. Right after he finished Off the Wall, he dug into making the album Triumph with his brothers. They wanted to combine the best of both albums for the tour. Can You Feel It was the first cut on the album and it had the closest thing to a rock feeling, which the Jacksons had never really done, but it wasn't really dance music either. So if you remember, they kind of started this bubblegum pop stuff. Mm -hmm. They didn't really move into rock. And this is actually the first time you'll actually hear them put in more of a rock feel to this. The Lonely One was an extension of Shake Your Body Down to the Ground, which was off the wall. And that was the, the sound that they interjected was a little bit of the mm -hmm. off the wall sound. In the book Moonwalk, Michael said, I tried out newer, more ethereal voices on Jackie's Your Ways. 
with the keyboards heading in a fairway quality. And I think fairway, he means circus. Oh, okay. Like, that's what I'm guessing. Everybody is a more playful song. Circus carnival, maybe? Yes, like a fairway, like the circus fairway. Okay, got it. Everybody was a more playful song than any of the off-the-wall dance tunes. With Mike McKinney propelling it like a, like a plane tuning and bearing down, the background vocals suggest get on the floor influences, but Quincy's sound is deeper. Now, speaking of Triumph, he does talk about the track Heartbreak Hotel. Remember, I told you guys in the last episode we were going to talk a little bit about Elvis. Mm-hmm. Now, in Michael's words, he says, I swear that was a phrase that came out of my head and I wasn't thinking of any other song when I wrote it. The record company printed on the cover as this place hotel because of the Elvis Presley connection. As important as he was to music, black and white as well, he just wasn't an influence on me. I guess he was too early for me. Maybe it was the timing more than anything. By the time our song had come out, people thought that it was like living in seclusion. There I was, I might die the way he did. The parallels aren't there as far as I'm concerned. And I was never much for scare tactics. Still the ways that he destroyed himself interests me because I don't ever want to walk those grounds myself. Wow. Yeah. And Wowzers. Verbatim because holy cow, that is prophetic. Scary. Yep. Yep. So to, to sure is. If you guys couldn't understand what I was saying, basically, if you guys know how Elvis Presley died, he did pass away due to, I believe, barbiturates. And he passed away uh in straining his, on the stove. Yes, he was in his mm. restroom. And reading a book about the Shroud of Turin. Really? remarkably specific. Yes. Wow. Now, if you guys don't know what the Shroud of Turin is, it's one of the most interesting pieces of cloth in history. <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, it is actually supposed to be the burial cloth of Jesus Christ that they found. And it was damaged in the fire of Turin, which I believe, if like if science is true, they tried to carbon date it, and they actually only were able to carbon date it to the 14th century, which would make it not the burial shroud of Jesus Christ, if you can do math. Then there's like a whole debate that uh, it had been repaired over the years, which included redoing the border, and that that's why it was that. And it's it's very interesting. I, I mean, that's there's no nobody actually really knows what it is. That's you know, like you said, there's a line of thought that it was the the burial shroud of Jesus Christ, but the the interesting thing about it is they can't explain why it looks the way it does. Like no scientist has been able to explain. So like it's, it almost looks like early photography, but they didn't have cameras. So we're not sure what this is. Yeah, there's, there's actually a lot of really interesting documentaries. I mean, we are taking a hard left because we're actually <laughs> almost done with this episode. We're, yeah, because we're, because so, suddenly we're talking, suddenly we're talking about the Bible. And food. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, check it out. It's very interesting because, uh, you know, there's there's purportedly no way that it should be able to exist because there was no painting style that echoed that. But they thought that maybe it was due to a, sort of a camera obscura idea that you it basically like pinhole, pinhole, pinhole photography huh. in a studio somewhere. So it's just it's neat no matter what it is. Yeah. So anyway, like hopping back in, that is eerie when you think about what he said. Yeah, it's creepy. It's very creepy. So I just decided to read that word for word because, uh, uh. So hopping back over to Triumph, Triumph gave them that final burst of energy that they needed to put together a perfect show with no filler material. They began rehearsing with a touring band, which included their bass player, Mike McKinney, and David Williams would travel, but he was actually now a permanent member of the band. 
on August 29th, 1979. We're so close. Well, you're already born. You're born. Yay, Will is born. Now we've only got like 42 more years to go. (laughs) On August 29th, 1979, Michael Jackson turned 21. But Jehovah's Witnesses do not celebrate birthdays. Or like major holidays. Or holidays or anything. And and the um, large amounts of money goes to the church and, you know, whatnot. Again, there's a lot about the Jehovah's Witnesses. And we will actually cover the Jehovah's Witnesses more on another series that's probably going to take 4,000 weeks to do. But we'll get there. I have a question about Michael and being a Jehovah's Witness. Yes. I know that, and what you're alluding to is Prince, obviously, who would actually proselytize door to door and like hand out the copies of Watchtower and stuff. Did Michael do that? I couldn't really find anything. Now, I know that she made them go to church, but I'm pretty sure they were funneling a lot of money into the church, which made them kind of exempt for that. Because think about like you go door to door and all of a sudden like the biggest pop act is at your front door. But I mean, Prince did that though. Yeah, but Prince did that. But you know, that, that was a choice I think Prince made as an adult. As far as Michael and the other Jacksons actually doing the door to door stuff, I don't actually know. It's not written anywhere in his biography. And it wasn't written in the other book that I read, The Magic Music, The Madness. It's not in Moonwalk. It's not. So I don't actually. I was just, I was just interested because I, I knew that was something Prince did. Yeah. Periodically. So. so even though Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate their birthday, the folks in the media would. They would always carve out magazine articles to mark important milestones in Michael's life. So when Michael turned 16, there's an article about Michael turning 16, Michael turns 18, even Michael turns 20. So of course, there was an article about Michael turning 21. (laughs) This was a turning point in his life, and he felt fantastic about it. He was really excited to take his life and his career into his own hands. I really felt like being a man is doing exactly what you want to do in this life and doing it successfully and to conquer a goal. Age is just a number. I know I'm no more of a man than I was yesterday, but it still means something to me to be 21. I've seen a lot and done a lot. However, I know things will be different for me better. Just days after that interview, he and his father had a huge blowout. One that was more bitter than any one in recent memory. Michael decided that the time had come to make it clear to his father that he didn't have any more control over his career. And of course, Joseph didn't like that idea. So after the argument, which did include an almost near physical altercation, Michael told his father that he was going to meet an attorney to investigate his options. And Joseph was crushed. Prior to this, Michael and his siblings... Uh, only used Joseph's attorneys and accountants. And now Michael wanted his own representation and he felt like his son didn't trust him. And of course, Michael didn't trust him. There's no reason to. Yeah, he was a millionaire in his own rights as a result of off the wall. And he wanted to hang on to that money for himself. And Michael wasn't dumb. He knew that if he was going to break away from the family, he would have to have his own money. And it had to be clean money. It couldn't be attached to anything that had to do with his father or his brother's. And I think that even includes the money that comes in from Peacock. Mm. Michael contacted Michael Meshnick, who, funny enough, also represented the Beach Boys, which we did cover one of the Beach Boys already, which was Dennis Wilson in our 
month of Manson, and he had arranged for Michael to meet three entertainment lawyers and to choose the one he liked the best. The resulting lawsuits cites Virgin Records and Massive Attacks Grant Marshall, Robert Denasia, and Andrew Vowles as defendants in the case, which seeks approximately $150,000 in damages and an injunction barring the inclusion of the tribute sample or Black Mill track on further pressings of mezzanine. Oh, oh shoot, I'm sorry. That wasn't the Jackson 5. That was Manfred Manzer. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Manfred Mann federally mandated reference of the podcast. Okay, wait, wait, you got to do it again. Man- Manfred Mann's Earth Band. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, the federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference of the podcast has been satisfied. Oh, yeah. All right, back to the lawyer thing. All right, the very first guy on the list was John Barnaca. Barnica? Barnica. John Barnica. Bronica. Barnakia. Bronica. I could have just say it. Bronica, song by uh, Elvis Costello, right? Bra, bra. Neka, Braneka, Franca, Bronkaya. Okay, we're gonna go. Bronka, what will John Bronka, Daniel L. Jackson. <laughs> so John Jackson Brown. <sighs> no, put the bottle away. Oh, <laughs> 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 All right. Bronica, we're just going to say Bronica. And I've, the funny thing is I actually tried to find like video clips of somebody saying his name <laughs> and no one said it. It is spelled B-R-A-N-C-A, Bronica. Bronca. We're going to go Bronca, Bronca. Like Bronco, but. Okay, yeah. we're going to go Bronca. Okay. Uh, so he actually wasn't a massive fan of Michael Jackson. He liked rock and roll, but when he checked with his colleagues, he was told that Michael was perceived in the music industry to be someone with the potential to be a massive superstar. He thought Michael might be an artist that could take him to the next level. And at the same time, he felt like an association with Michael could be beneficiary to his own career as an attorney. I don't think he's wrong. The meeting with Jackson was a little bit weird. He only took off his sunglasses once at the beginning where he asked John, if the two had previously met. When they agreed that they had not met each other, Michael smiled, put his sunglasses on, and that was pretty much it. Michael Mesnick asked John a lot of questions, and they both listened to the answers. He seemed shy and uncomfortable, but he began to relax when Michael explained to John the reason why he needed representation and that he wanted independence from his family, especially his father. He also wanted his own business affairs reviewed and included in the publishing deals and his record sales. Uh, He also wanted a contract from Epic for himself as a solo artist, which now that he's putting out successful solo albums, isn't so far-fetched of a thought. John was enthusiastic and eager to assist in any way possible. And as far as he could tell, Michael decided that he was the right man for his job. So Michael Nesmick had given him a list of three names, and John was on the top of that list. Once they had the meeting, Michael Jackson requested that the other two interviews be canceled, and he hired John immediately. Hmm. Early on, Michael confided in John that his two main goals were to be the biggest star in show business and to be the wealthiest. 
and he was still bitter about his Grammy. So he told John that he was still angry that Off the Wall had only garnered him one Grammy. I sold five million in the U.S., six million foreign. That's a big record. It was totally unfair that I didn't get record of the year, and that can never happen again. John got to work, and the first thing he did was to renegotiate Michael's CBS contract with the company president. John managed to secure for Michael the highest royalty rate in the business at the time, which was hold on, hold on to your pants, kids. 37 percent of wholesale and that was that's a that's a a generous cut yeah only two other artists had that much of a royalty rate which was neil diamond and bob dylan huh and think about the year that it is it is 1970 i got that makes me wish i had a neil diamond impression half as good as that bob dylan impression boy he also made a deal with walter which was the president of CBS and the Jackson's legal representation, John Mason, that Michael could leave the Jackson's anytime he wanted in the future. John also worked out that if Michael did leave the group, CBS was still obligated to record the Jackson albums without him. And I feel like that was a really nice gesture and something that might have satiated Joseph. So that's like saying, you know, the biggest star is leaving the band. You still have these members left. And if they've got material that they want to record and you still got a contract with them, you still have to honor that, even though I'm gone. Hmm. And I think that was really kind of nice of them. From that point on, legally, and thanks to John, Michael would never have to record another song with his brothers unless he wanted to. Hmm. And honestly, the brothers really weren't worried at this time or they didn't even think that this would have any kind of detrimental impact on the group because they felt secure that he would remain with the group. Well, I think all the friction was coming from Joseph, and it seems to be clear at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to face the fact that Michael's New Deal was impressive, so much so that I think everybody can pretty much agree that Michael's New Deal was really, really impressive. Yes. And you could see the work that John had put in to turn that deal into something very sweet for him. And I think his brother, Randy, saw that and then wanted to have a solo career, too. Wanted to be free of the family, wanted to go out on his own. So he actually reached out to hire John as well. During a meeting, John asked Michael what he thought about that idea. Michael said that he thought it stunk. (laughs) He was pissed because he had gone out and done this one thing for himself. He had hired John as a sign of his own independence. Now, here comes his family wanting to weasel in and get the same kind of attention that Michael was getting, and it really rubbed him the wrong way. Are you saying that you don't want me to represent Randy, John asked. What I'm saying is, I don't want you to represent Randy, Jackie, Tito, or anybody else with the last name Jackson. If you do, then we will be finished, you and I. You got it, John agreed. And on that happy note, we are going to end this episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All right. Casting thoughts, guys. Little um power play there at the very end. It's kind of weird because Michael had always seemed to have a good relationship with his brothers. Not not his father, obviously, but but with his brothers, they were a very tight unit. And so I don't know if that's just, no, I'm completely going to be by myself and by my own man and i'm going to do this this thing is going to be something i'm doing or there's a little resentment there of some kind about something i don't know that, that's that's an interesting end i'm gonna say honestly what he said was that he had done this one thing for himself he has spent his entire life 
with this band. They're his brothers. Since he was age five, he's been on stage pumping out music. And he turns 21 and he wants a little bit of freedom. And so the one thing that he does is he goes and hires this lawyer so he can gain that independence. And I think it rubbed him the wrong way when Randy sought out John specifically, because that was like, I did my research. I went through all those channels. I had the interview with him. I figured out he was the best for me. And, you know, no one seemed to want to hire him until he got me that deal. So I think it was more of the Randy wanted to hire John specifically. If Randy had gone to any other uh, music or entertainment lawyer, probably wouldn't have rubbed him the wrong way like that. But like, it was almost like his brother was trying to hustle in on something that he had done himself. Like he saw John as his, his step toward independence and here Mm. his brother trying to tag along and get the same thing. I could kind of see it as I I could see where Michael's coming from, but I could see also where you're coming from. Yeah. Any thoughts, Will? I mean, I think it's sort of a duality of Michael wanting to separate from the family, but at the same time, I think there's that inherent need. He wants to prove himself worthy in his father's eyes, which is sadly, I don't think a battle he can win because the life that Joe planned for Michael was do what I tell you to do, follow the rules, Mm -hmm. stay with your brothers, you know? And now Michael Jackson's saying like, hey, look, I can do this. I can create. I'm, I've got this whole other album. And again, the, the you know, conflict with Joseph is not getting any better. So I think it's going to haunt him. And I think it does haunt him for the rest of his life. And I think very yeah. much so. I mean, he was under the shadow of his father his entire life. Yeah. Joe didn't pass until after Michael was already gone. Right, right. So he's been under this. He will be under this man's thumb for his whole life. And the whole family, I think, is he was the only one to go, right? It was Michael. Yeah, he's the only one so far that has passed. But yeah, I, I just kind of wanted to end on a more wistful note, I guess. I mean, I know he's grumpy toward the end, but like he was stepping out. He's created off the wall. He's created something that is his and his alone. He has won his own Grammy, mm-hmm. you know? He's becoming an independent artist. And so uh, next week, I, I wish I could tell you I remembered if next week is going to suck or not, but it probably is. But the week after that, we're just going to have an episode on one single uh, thing. I really like that one. One single thing. So I hope you guys have a great week. Anybody else have anything that they need to wrap up or anything? I don't think that's it for me. Okay, perfect. So I'm going to give out our social stuff and then we'll all say goodnight and it'll be amazing. Right, Woo! guys? So if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check out our Twitter at rock and roll LT. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Facebook, rock and roll heaven pod. You guys join us on Facebook, dude. It's so fun over there. We don't just post like gloom and doom stuff. We're posting like our drinks that we're having. We're, we post fun little quiz stuff, videos, uh, things that go along with our episodes, supplemental stuff. Like it's a lot of fun over there. And even my brother posts on Facebook. So mm-hmm. please go check us out on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us if you like to rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcast at pantheonpodcast.com. And if you can find it in your warm little heart since it's January, and I'm sure that you guys are all working on your New Year's resolution. I hope that your resolution is actually to go over to Apple, iTunes, podcasts, whatever, and give us a five-star review because we love you guys. We do this for you every week. My brother right now, it's like midnight for him. It's later than that. It's, oh yeah. So we're going to let my brother go to bed now. So, all right, TJ, do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience? Bye, brother. Mr. Thrill. I think it's been a good one. Have a good night, everyone. All right, guys. And to close off, 
this episode. I didn't write any notes for the song, so I'm just going to tell you guys, we're going to play Rock With You because it's a damn good song. You guys have a great week. We'll see you next time. Love you all. Good night. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.